Oh, good. So today is, is of course, a momentous day. Uh, it's uh, December 7th, of course, the day that lives in infamy. And uh, we, by happenstance, are here dealing with uh, the future and the past of the uh, aerospace industry, particularly in the, in the uh, Northrop Grumman perspective. Uh, <clears throat> and a year ago today, we, we also had another event here, which was the, uh, the Artemis and, the, uh, and the, the last steps on the moon and the first steps on the moon. Uh, the last steps, the next steps on the moon. The last steps, of course, were the Apollo 17, which was 50, 51 years ago. Uh, and the next steps will be the Artemis, and, and that was uh, presented by, uh, by William and Wittenberry. Yay, yes. <laughs> um, pardon me. <clears throat> so uh, let me take care of a couple of little details here first uh, for those of us that are that are present in the, in, in the location. Uh, there is an issue about parking. If you parked in, below the library today, uh, that that parking lot will lock up at 8 p.m. So uh, either go there now and or be sure that you, you get down there before 8. The uh, the adjacent the, the parking lot to the west of, of this here and the one up on the roof are both open until the 9 p.m. closing hour of the, of the library. Uh, also, uh, if anybody needs a restroom in the course of this, uh, the restrooms are currently accessed by going into the library, full, full U-turn to the left, you'll find them there. After 8 p.m., the access door from this side will be open, and that, and that will be a little easier, but uh, you'll find your way there and back. Um, We do need to leave by 9 p.m., which is the closing hour. But I think that we should be comfortably within that range. Uh, and this, of course, is an American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics event for Los Angeles, Las Vegas section. And uh, you're, you would have gotten the, uh, the notice of that, of, the, of this event and, and many other events through the through the email, if you uh, are interested in joining the AIAA, you can talk to myself or to Ken, and uh, it's a um, you know it's a national his, national organization dedicated to the furtherance of uh, of, of aerospace and aviation, and um, I think it's a it's an excellent uh, professional contribution to to your career if you were to uh, to join the organization. Uh, I say you can be a 
You can work in the aviation industry for years, aerospace industry, without ever needing to join a professional society. Um, you're a day laborer. You're working basically for the um, for the for the performance of the day, the, the weekly paycheck. But if you truly believe you're a professional and that you want to contribute to the technology and and keep up with what's going on in the industry, the professional society is the answer to do that. And we make the cool stuff. We do. Oh, they're up there. Yeah. Okay, so our speaker tonight is Mike Cimonera, and I pronounce it in, in, a, in an Italian fashion. He usually pronounces it Cimonera. Uh, Mike it was the uh, uh, was a, was the vice president with Northrop, Northrop Grumman, and also a uh, involved in, with the preliminary, with preliminary and advanced design of many aircraft. You wonder how does a man achieve that position? Well, in Mike's case, uh, he, as a student, uh, was very interested in the design of aircraft. This is the high school. And he was, when he took drafting courses, he actually drafted up, designed some various aircraft, aircraft configurations that he thought were interesting potential. And in the course of that, he forwarded those drawings to Grumman Aircraft Company in, in the neighborhood. And uh, they actually responded. Apparently, he had some innovative ideas at that time as well. They responded with comments about things that were not were, could be could be improved or that were not uh, necessarily the uh, the effective or, or proper way to go. And in the course of things, uh, they established communication back and forth. And as a result, uh, when he graduated high school, he actually started working with with uh, with Grumman Aircraft. I don't think it was immediately in his design area, but it might have been. Anyway, um, fast forward through the through his through his college, he then uh, hired into Grumman, and so he's a. 51-year employee of, of, Northrop, of Grumman, followed by Northrop Grumman. When the Grumman was looking at taking at, at, at merging with uh, Northrop, he had been out here already doing some collaboration with various other projects, and so it was um, not unnatural for him to come out and join the advanced design team here. Uh, obviously very well spoken and in the course of all these things he's kept track of the people that he worked with every time he gives a conversation it's 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 not about me it takes a team to do these projects and it's not about me the book was in collaboration with many of the people that uh, have contributed to the art to the to the industry. So 
uh, at this point, he is now the, the president of the Western Museum of Flight, uh, which is in Torrance. And, uh, and they, are, they have a, an excellent series of programs, both in the, in the, in the museum facility and also on, on, a, on a monthly uh, uh, program on Saturday mornings. Which, regrettably, I'm generally out in Flaybob Airport with the White Flyer Project on that at, at that time. So I've rarely been able to make those things. But anyway, um, I'd like to present Mike Simonero and our, our speaker for the evening. Okay. Well, good evening, everyone. That's right. Let me, let me do one other thing. Uh, with regards to the uh, to the online presentation, uh, please, if you're online, please wait for the uh, conclusion of the program uh, of, of the presentation, and uh, and at that point, you can request access and uh, perhaps send chat messages uh, to uh, to request a question to be to be answered at that time the presentation nominally takes about 45 minutes mm -hmm. and we will have approximately a 45 minute period scheduled following that uh, for questions and answers and general conversation thank you. okay thank you very much well I uh, would like to thank you for the opportunity to talk to you about a project that actually began uh, way back in 2009 when the sector president of uh, Northrop Grumman uh, gave his okay that I could proceed with this uh, project. So the, the first project that uh, I got involved with was the Aircraft Designers of Grumman, and uh, that took three and a half years. Uh, this project, which is a thousand pages in two volumes, uh, took six years to put together and two and a half years to produce because of COVID. And uh, and what you have in front of you is a book card that if any of you are interested in it, at some point, you, this will allow you to order it and what have you. So we go from there. First of all, I'd like to thank the AIAA for the opportunity to talk to you about this book. In particular, David Arthur, who was the senior manager of editorial acquisitions and development, and Kath Buckley, the uh, manager and editor of the books. It's very, very complicated to get these books done these days. And I'd like to thank Gary, who just introduced me, and Ken Louie and Kevin Burns for arranging this lecture and other things happening. I'm particularly indebted to Northrop Grumman because, as I said, they endorsed the book. Harvey Mudd College, the Western Museum of Flight, and a gentleman by the name of Aldo Spadonia. I don't know whether many of you knew him or not, but he ended up with engineering visualization, and he's the one that designed the covers for the book and uh, about 60 charts out of the some 850 pictures are in, in, in the book. And uh, I'd also like to acknowledge people who endorsed the book, uh, starting with Ken Cressa, the ex-CEO, Brian Hunt, God rest his soul, chief engineer, Irv Wallen, chief designer, 
Chris Hernandez, who headed the B2 program, and John Whitberry, uh, who was in the audience with his wife, Beth. He also read the book. And uh, so their endorsements were very critical to get the thing going. And I also like to acknowledge 150 people and institutions that helped me generate this book. Now, let me see if I can get this right. Now, why this type of book? Well, uh, all of us, if I asked you how many of you have been leaders in your field, every one of you probably would have raised your hand. But when you become a leader, you don't do it by yourself. You're surrounded by people that make it happen for you. And I had this idea with the blessing of my wife, believe it or not, that said, you know, I really want to remember these people who generated a lot of these designs. Who were they? What were their stories? Bring them to life and relate them to the product. Now, the book is divided into two volumes because of the size. It starts with the formative years from 1916 all the way till 1938 when Jack Northrop formed Northrop Bremen, Northrop, I should say. And then the post-war era, the startup of war, the post-war era, the lineage of flying wings and the turbodyne, and the lineage of trainer and fighter aircraft. These are very long chapters. And then we go to volume two, where I was allowed to talk about stealth and the lineage of the B-2 bomber, how it came about. The lineage of unmanned systems is a very large chapter. We cover a lot of them. And then technology demonstrators relating to laminar flow and several other things. Close air supports the A-9 and the legacy programs are the Growler, the E-2D, et cetera. And then I wrap it up with a perspective and identify over 40 key people that really made it happen for Northrop Grumman. And it's by no means a final list. Let's see if I can find it here. Okay. Okay, one of the things in the chart that uh, was in the first book is a genealogy chart. And I show it to you there. If you look here, right where I'm talking, just below me, right here, this is a blow up of the genealogy chart. This will eventually be available online in, in a printed version. Uh, the, AI, the, uh, the AIAA, because of the production difficulties uh, of printing a lot of books could not do it, but it will be available. But as you can see from the pictures, it starts from the uh, 1915 time period with the S1, it was 1916 and goes all the way to post 2010, roughly a hundred years. And there are some 79 manned and unmanned aircraft there. Now I don't start the book with Jack Northrop. I start with Betty Johansson, his daughter. When I interviewed her, she was 95 years old, okay? She was sharp, and absolutely an incredible person to talk to. I spent all day with her. And she told me about Jack Northrup. He was kind of a Leonardo da Vinci. He was very humble. He was very compassionate uh, about his family and those who worked for him. He kept his friendships a long time. He loved Bill Boeing. He helped Ed Heineman from Douglas find his own house. He was a good listener. He worked seven days a week except vacations, and he kept a drawing board in his den, and he drew constantly. I met a young man who was in preliminary design, and you can imagine what it was like being around a person like that. 
he was very kind to his employees. You could see that by going back through history and seeing what he did. And she remembered him for inventing devices for the home. He had all types of things that he invented. It was really remarkable. So um, that's a, just a little bit of peek at what type of a man he was. Oh, it went too fast. Okay. Okay, we jumped ahead here. Hmm, that's interesting. Okay, I wasn't able to show you the six charts. For some reason, it was here and all of a sudden it's disappeared. But that's okay. We'll, we'll keep going. One of the first airplanes that he designed was the Vega in 1927. Uh, it was a remarkable airplane. It was revolutionary for its time. It had a cantilever wing top mounted with the wing spar attached to the fuselage. And you notice the fuselage is cylindrical. And that was formed in a special process that they did in 1916 on the S-1, where they used pressure and plywood to form a, a mold for a fuselage. It was, it was monocoque in design, and it took, as I say, about 21 months to develop. There were 14 variants of this airplane, and uh, on the lower right, you, there's a picture there, and in the center of the fuselage is a gentleman named Gerald Maltese. Remember Consolidated Vaulty Corporation? Well, that gentleman was working for Jack, Jack Northrop. And as I say, the S-1 was had a very streamlined fuselage and that technology got into the Vega. This airplane was vastly ahead of anything flying at that time in the world. Now we jump ahead to the Avion Corporation. Well, Jack, Jack Northrup, this was a very pivotal year in 1929 uh, for him because he was converting his vision of a streamlined airplane into a flying wing to make it a reality. Now, he didn't really totally understand the stability and control of a flying wing. That's why you see the booms or what have you. But those of you that know anything about thickness to corn ratio, the thickness to cord ratio was 25%. It flew very well. It only flew 100 miles an hour, but he explored the flying characteristics of a, an augmented flying wing at that, at that time. Quite a remarkable achievement. Then in the 1930 to 1934 time period, he designed a series of airplanes called the Alpha, the Beta on the upper right, the Delta the, on, on the lower left, and the Gamma, which was a world winner in uh, late, later, later on. And these were remarkable airplanes in the sense that the Alpha, when you look at it, employed for the first time something called wing fillets to reduce drag. And if you come to the museum, there is a wind tunnel interactive display and there's a black wooden model built in 1928 of the Alpha with something called wing fillets. Imagine, That's quite a story. It also had rubber de-icing boots and the latest radio equipment. The Beta was a much lighter airplane, only weighed about 1,800 pounds. It was a very good trainer. The Army got interested, but they didn't pick up on it. The Delta on the lower left was a transport with a single engine and it carried passengers. You can see how streamlined it was. Only thing is, is the Civil Air Authority at the time, which became the FAA, made a ruling that said you can't fly at night over bad territory with a single engine. 
So they only built 32 of them and it went on from there. However, the gamma was a, was a winner. The gamma weighed about, that's in the lower right, weighed about 7,400 pounds compared with the alpha in the upper left, which was 4,500. Uh, it had a range of 1,650 miles, a wing area of 300, almost 300 square feet. 17 derivatives were developed from the gap. 17. One went to the Antarctica. They developed attack, dive bombers, fighters, civil, commercial, and foreign sales. So quite a remarkable achievement. Now, what happened is that this chart I put in for you to get some idea of something called a multicellular structure. There are two things that Northrop was known for, streamlining and extremely strong structures. And as Ed Heinemann said uh, way back, uh, Jack Northrop was able to purchase a machine from Sweden that was a coupon tester. Harvey Eidenhoff, who knows all about that, he was uh, one of the leading structural experts at, at Grumman for many years, Harvey, in fatigue, but that's okay. But anyway, he, he tested these, these structures, these boxes, and they failed and failed and failed, and eventually it started to work. So he created a multicellular structure. The DC-1, 2, and 3 all feature this type of structure. One of the, one of the uh, earlier airplanes, the Alpha, crashed because one of the cables failed, the controls, and Jack Northrop ordered on the lower right a tractor to see if he could crush the wing structure. Guess what happened? It didn't crush. Okay. So it was, there was no other aircraft of the day that possessed the strength of the Northrop Alpha. Now we move on to the beginning of Northrop as we knew it today in 1939. Now, the first airplane he designed was the N3PB, the patrol bomber for the Norwegian Air Force. There were 24 of them. And as you can see, it's rather streamlined. And if you think about it, it looks a lot like the Gamma. It had very streamlined struts, a crew of three or what have you, uh, streamlined tandem seating, a streamlined fuselage with engine cowling and floats, proven airfoil shape and work rate. It weighed almost 8,000 pounds. And um, what happened, it, um, it had very excellent performance and way back, uh, they, as I say, they were all destroyed in World War II. However, the Norwegian government came to Grumman, came to Northrop in the in the 70s and found this wreckage on, on an iceberg. And they said, could you rebuild this pile of junk, so to speak? And they did. Now, they didn't certify it, but if you come to the museum, you'll see a picture of it. It looks like it's flying. And as a result, the Norwegian Air Force gave the museum an F-5A. Right, so which is now could be viewed and what have you. So it's quite a remarkable, quite a remarkable achievement in that sense. Now we move on to the Black Widow. Now there were new technologies being pursued both in England and the United States in aircraft design. The P-61 was the forerunner because it had to balance aircraft performance with something called a weapon system. Right, that was very, very new. So integration was relatively new. And how do you how do you how do you integrate a radar into an airplane of that size? This was all groundbreaking work. The English had an air, a, a very efficient air defense system, 
but they did not have a good night fighter. So Northrop had a good dialogue with the British agencies and they decided on long loiter time, additional fuel for combat, uh, sufficient high altitude capability, very good low speed maneuverability. And the Brits of course wanted a multi-engine and heavy firepower. So Jack Northrop came out with this design. Now you might say, well, it looks like a P-38. It's much, much bigger than a P-38. Believe me, it had three long nacelles, twin engines, a separate crew fuselage, tricycle uh, landing gear and what have you. And it worked out very well. And the reason the word came about Black Widow was that when they moved into the new factory in Hawthorne, it was filled with Black Widow spiders. And they said, we don't like those guys, so let's call it the Black Widow. That's how the name came about. That's right, that's right. No, sir. No, sir. It was not. Okay, thank you. And um, so anyway, so that's the story about the P-61. I'll tell you a little anecdote. One of the things that happened when I was writing the book, somebody told me to go up to Harvey Mudd College and meet this woman called Iris Critchell. Now, Iris Critchell um, was flying in the backseat of, of a P-51 at the age of 98. She was in charge of the Bates Library and the Aerospace Training Program up there. And some of the engineers at Northrop Grumman actually were trained by her at Harvey Mudd College. So I got to know her and I spent up there, I was up there many, many times because they were given 10,000 photographs from Roy Wolford, Jack Northrop's close associate of Northrop airplanes. And I had the first access to them. But along the way, I found out she was a wasp in World War II. She flew fighters and bombers all over the United States. So one day I'm talking to her about the P-61 and she said, just a minute, Mike. I said, okay. So with that, she got up and opened up the cabinet and read this book for 20 minutes. It was the flight manual of the P-61 from 1943. And then she told me how it flew. Just a little anecdote. Okay. All right. Now we move on to the F-89D. We're not into flying wings yet. But the P-61 for the F-89D, you can compare it on the bottom and what have you in terms of ceiling and what have you. But the, the, the F-89 underwent a tremendous amount of redesign. Um, and there was a lot of work done on the F, F section in order to get the drag down and what have you. They built over six, 680 F-89Ds. These were with wingtip rocket pods as shown here. And they built 300 and 50 J models, modified Ds with nuclear tipped missiles to defend the United States against a Soviet attack at that time coming over the North. Imagine what happened. Over a thousand were built, a remarkable, remarkable achievement. Now I'm gonna tell you about the SNARK. Now after the war, after the war, the United States embarked on ballistic missile program, right? They also had a ramjet long-range missile, and then they had a long-range cruise missile program. And Jack Northrop, in his way, said, well, let's go ahead and get involved in the long-range cruise missile program. And they developed something called the SNARK. Now, that's a, that's a, a name that was uh, an inconceivable creature from one of the Carell uh, uh, writers or what have you. Now, everybody said this program was a fit. It was not a fit. It became operational. It took 10 years to get there. The weight, the, 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 the Air Force or the Army at the time 
triple the size of the warhead, they triple the size of the range, and the, the weight went from roughly 28,000 on the left to the operational version that reached 62,000 pounds. They were launched from Maine, and they would fly 5,000 miles at high subsonic speed with a nuclear weapon. Now, the interesting thing about this is that it did achieve operational performance. Everybody says it was a failure. It's not, a, not in my book. I've been down this road too many times. He had to develop a whole new launching system for us, an entire logistics system for us. All the facilities had to be designed and what have you. So in terms of putting together, and of course the guidance system, they had to bring in somebody that understood, guess what, computers and guidance and optics that did not exist. So all that was put together to make this program uh, a success. Now, from a historical point of view, that's how I view it. Maybe somebody has different viewpoints, but we can talk about that. This assisted launch was the first I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We'll take questions after, if you don't mind. You, do you mind? No, 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 it's okay. No, 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 just retain it. I'll, we'll get back to it. Okay, so um, let's move on now to the realization of a dream called the N1M Jeep. Now, what happened is in the 38 time period, while Jack Northrup was transitioning from uh, one company to forming his own company, he was in the desert flying 48 to 60 inch span flying wings in the desert by himself. He would build them and fly them, different aspect ratios, different tapers or what have you, just to see how it would fly. And what happened is that when he formed the first company, obviously they needed subcontracting work and production work and what have you, but they designed the N1M Jeep, which you can see right here. And that became a reality and that's the design team below you. Now, what happened after that, and one of the things that happened is that Jack Northrup was very close to a general by the name of Hap Arnold. Anybody remember that name? Okay. And General Horth is another gentleman. And what happened is that two years later, after flying the N1, he was given a contract to develop a 155,000 pound strategic bomber called the XB-30. Imagine, 1940, 1942, he got the contract. So he had his hands full. And in order to make that happen, they had a flying prototype on the upper left called the N9M. That weighed about 8,000 pounds. The, the, the previous one, the N1, was about 4,000 pounds. And that was to emulate the flying qualities of the wing. The only problem was it could not emulate the propulsion system, which was a, a nightmare, which I'll, which I'll talk to you about. So that's the XB35 right there on the upper right. The YB-49 is on the lower left. When the XB-35 was canceled, Jack Northrop had already started the redesign of the, of the XB-49. And then the RB-49A, which had a totally redesigned propulsion system and flew excellent, was flown very successfully and sat on the desert for three years till General Curtis LeMay canceled the whole program, which was a disaster. But the problem was, is the reasons for this uh, were, were numerous. Uh, first of all, you were in the middle of a war. 
You had limited manpower. Some of the work had to be outsourced. And the some of you have heard of government furnished equipment, GFE equipment. How many have heard of GFE? Okay, all right. Thank you very much. Okay, you all know about that. Well, the engine, the 28-foot shaft, and the propeller installation was all GFE. Okay. And uh, the problem is they didn't work very well. They had multiple failures to the point where the Army Air Force canceled the program. But fortunately, Jack Northrop was able to redesign the area with a lot of coaxing and put the engines in the YB-49, which turned out to be an excellent airplane. Now, it had something called a weathercocking problem, and it really needed an autopilot, which they use in airplanes today to be successful. But it almost made it. The problem was it came out after the war's end. The B-35 flew in 46, the YB-49 in 47, and the Air Force said, hey, look, you got a lot of problems, we're gonna cancel it. And uh, it was a bit of a disaster the way it happened, but the point is it paved a lot of ground. It really did. So I'll go to the next chart. Whoops, okay, all right. This ended up for some reason with the shortened version. And I don't know how that happened because I just looked at it before and it was okay, but that's all right. We have plenty to talk about. Uh, the changing of the guard. Um, Jack Northrup retired in 1952. And uh, what happened is that they brought in some really very, very fine people. On the upper left is Edgar Schmood. He was very involved with the design of the P-51 and developed the F-86 Sabre which is in our museum today. Probably one of the finest fighter airplanes that's ever been designed. And then Bill Ballhouse Sr. on the upper right came in. He was with Douglas, where he designed bombers and supersonic research aircraft, etc. He was with Conveyor, head of preliminary design, and he became chief engineer and, of course, an officer at, at, uh, at Northrop. And on the lower left is Wilco Gassich. Um, he was a distinguished scholar Chief of Preliminary Design in 53, head of Advanced Systems, and became an officer. And unfortunately, I got to know him in his late 90s. He just passed away at the age of 100. Remarkable man, he was six feet seven in his prime, big man. And, uh, oh, I just jumped ahead here. I'm sorry about that. Um, and then on the lower right is a gentleman by the name of Tom Jones. He was a distinguished scholar from Stanford. It turns out that that uh, Bill Ballhouse, Gassich, and Tom Jones all went to Stanford. So there's got to be something going on there very well. Now we come to the evolution of the T-38 and the N-156. This is a remarkable airplane that many of you have heard about. Uh, Ron Gibb, sitting right here, uh, was very involved uh, for over 50 years in the F-5. And uh, was very helpful with me in providing me with a lot of information. And they stressed things like safety, good flying qualities, very low life cycle cost, performance, engine removal, engine accessibility, boarding ladder, a NORAIL manufacturing system. The takeoff gross weight between an, a T-38 and an F-100 went from 12,000 to roughly 31,000 pounds. And the maintenance man hours for flight hour were roughly one half of the F-100. 
So really, it was quite a, quite a remarkable achievement of what they did. They basically took small GE turbojet engines used on, on, on missiles and upscaled them to the J85, which went into, into the F5. Remarkable achievement, absolutely remarkable. And what you can see here, of course, is the patent drawing on the left, and then some of the key people, uh, Lee Vegan and George Bluius, that's Wilco Gassich right there, and the chief engineer from General Electric and, and Gardner, our program manager. Now, this is a genealogy chart. You know, all the boxes mean a lot of things. The main thing to keep in mind, there were 31 major versions sold to 34 countries, and they're still in service today, ladies and gentlemen. They're still in, and if, how many of you have seen Top Gun? Okay, many of you have, okay. Well, what do you think one of the adversarial airplanes was? A souped up F-5. You couldn't touch the damn thing, because it could stand on its tail and had tremendous maneuverability. Close in, right? So when the F-14 went up against it, you know, the f 14 is a pretty maneuverable airplane. It was a big baby, because I know, but the point is, uh, it, it, they, it, it had its hands full. So. Okay, these are pictures of the F-5A, the F-5B on the upper right, and the F-5E and the F-5F. And um, the pictures are very, very nice. What's interesting, though, is, the, is not only the time, but the weight change. Like, for example, the T-38 weighed 12,500 pounds, the F5A weighed 20,000, and the F5F more rate uh, takeoff for design takeoff was 25,000 pounds. The Mach number increased from 1.2, almost 1.6, and the range went from roughly 1,000 to 1,400 to almost 1,800 miles. So these were remarkable product improvements that Northrop put into these airplanes. And that's why they were sold all over the world. They were very low maintenance, excellent performance, good turning capability with a reasonable payload. Now, could it carry the payload of an F-100? No, it could not, but it was sure damn reliable. Okay, now what happens, we're gonna transition now into the, um, into the uh, YF-17 from the F-18A Hornet. And what we have here is a picture on the upper, portion of the YF-17 and the F-18A Hornet. Now, a lot of people used to say, well, gee, you know, there was very little redesign in the airplane. Well, that's not true. When the Air Force, when the Navy first evaluated the YF-17 for the Navy mission, they rejected it because it didn't have the features that the Navy wanted. So Northrop teamed with McDonnell Douglas and they worked together. When I took over the F-18A, B, C, D, a production program, the teamwork between the two companies was fabulous. They were highly integrated teams. It was a learning process. But you can see on the on the left there, there were major structural modifications of wing fold, more wing area, landing gear, resting gear, uh, advanced radars that they had to put a new nose on, cockpit design, and very heavy emphasis on reliability and maintainability. So actually a, a remarkable achievement and the F-18 uh, I'll tell you another side story. Uh, in my trips uh, uh, to the Far East and in Japan, where we were trying to sell the F-14, I had the occasion, uh, having been on the program for a long time, to meet the uh, head of the Pacific Fleet. And uh, I went in to see him, and he wanted to know all about the F-14 and the product improvements, et cetera. 
And he said, Mike, the reason why the F-18 was chosen, right, is that we could turn it three times the F, I'm sorry, the reason why the F-18 was chosen, they could turn it three times a day, in fact, they could turn the F-14A once. Now, the F-14A had tremendous firepower, much longer range, it was a very complicated airplane. The, the F-18 was smaller, but that just shows you the difference in design, design philosophy. Okay, now we go to the F-18F, uh, the EF version. This program was a model program of acquisition in the United States of America and will always remain that way. It was on time, it was on budget, it was on cost, it won the Collier Trophy, and these are some of the key people that I worked very, very closely with on the, on the F-18A through uh, D program. Mike Wolski was head of manufacturing, God rest his soul, and Brian Hunt has passed on. He was chief engineer of the, of the, of the sector as well as the F-18. But you can see what a tremendous airplane that, that turned out to be. Now we come to the YF-23. Uh, this was a remarkable program. Uh, it, 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 did not, it did not win. The YF-22 won that program. But in terms of a demonstration validation program, when you read about it in the book, it was almost like a full-scale development. They had to prove logistically, operationally, stealth-wise, and what have you, that this system could go from day one. And it did. It lost out because of other reasons. I won't go into all that. But you can see down here some of the basic characteristics. Uh, well, let me step back. You can see on the upper right some of the changes in configuration that we went through in order to achieve this balanced design approach. By the way, at the museum, we have the YF-23. It's being repainted right now and will soon be in the, in the middle of both hangars where you can see it. There are people come from all over the world to see what a stealth fighter really looks like, and this really looks like one. But you can see it achieved it achieved Mach 1.5 nominally military thrust. Now, actually, you could probably do better than that, but it was quite a remarkable thing. And it had heavy use of composites and titanium in its structure. Now we move on to the F-35. Now I can't, at this point, give uh, with time and what have you, give credit to some of the people like Paul Martin Soto and uh, Peter Shaw, who spent so much time uh, working and leading the F-35 program. But we are still producing the center section of it. But actually, in terms of the flyaway cost, Northrop Grumman is 40% of the flyaway cost of that airplane, nominally, because we not only build the center fuselage, but we do the fire control radar, the distributed aperture system, which is 360 degree visibility that appears to the pilot, communication, software development, training systems, software, and low observables management. How about that? So uh, when Northrop, uh, and uh, again, Lockheed have a very close relationship on this program, this is gonna go on for a long, long time. You're looking at thousands of airplanes, maybe not as many as the F-5, but a lot of airplanes are gonna be built. Now we come to the 
advanced technology bomber, which led to the which led to the B two. And I mentioned a couple of people there by the name of John Paterno and and what have you. And uh, Northrop Grumman had worked on a couple of programs before this um, called Tacit Blue, as well as the XST program. And for some reason, I apologize. I went through these charts. It was set up and, and they're not in here. So we'll have to talk around it. But basically, they were asked by Colonel England to bid on the ATV bomber because we had proven low observable credentials. Now, what that means, ladies and gentlemen, is you have to work with things like GenSCAT, the codes. You have to understand the codes to predict RCS. You have to be able to build full-scale RCS wind tunnel models and subscale. You have to understand materials. Not only understand it, but you have to build the low observable materials. That has to be inherent in the house in order to be a leader in stealth technology. Northrop proved that by virtue of the work they had done in the 70s on the XST program, which became the YF-17, because Lockheed was the leader then. And Northrop proved that we could match that, but it, we didn't. the design didn't quite make it. And then the following program called Tacit Blue, which came as a result of one of the earlier Israeli wars, was a low observable side-looking radar stealthy airplane, which had to fly over enemy territory, not be detected with a low probability of intercept radar of hundreds of miles to see tanks. It worked. And when you look at the top surface of Tacit Blue in the B-2, you see a lot of similarity in inlet shaping and nose contours and what have you. So what happened is that as a result of all that, is that the Air Force said, we want you to bid on the advanced technology bomber. And we did. There's the original drawing right there. And there's the proposal model right there. Right? And guess what? Northrop won that program. Now, in order to carry this program out, we had to bring in the top people from the space shuttle program to help manage it because it was a very complex program. They didn't build a lot of them, but remember, you had to integrate all the stealth, radar systems, major subcontractors like Vought and Boeing all had to work together to make this happen. You can see John Cashin, who was the vice on the left, vice president of stealth, Herb Wallen, chief designer, and Jim Canoe, who was the program manager. And we also brought in people like George Diaz, uh, who was one of the leaders on the space shuttle program for Rockwell to manage the engineering and what have you. And as a result of this program, a series of people came out of it, young people called the executors. It's in the book. These are young men and women who were trained on developing very advanced stealth, highly integrated systems, and they're now leading the company. I had the, I had the pleasure of working, working with a lot of them. And we get to the first flight of the V-2 bomber. You can see it on the left there, what a beautiful airplane it was. It has uh, quite a remarkable payload capability. I will, uh, uh, I can't talk too much about it, but that's one of the biggest bomb bays I've ever seen in my life. And of course, uh, there's nothing like a 40 to 45 hour mission that V-2s fly all the time, what have you. And that's Bruce Hines being dosed with water after the first flight. 
Now we get to unmanned systems. Okay, so the first person I want to talk about, company, is called Radio Plant. Now, the gentleman on the upper left is Reginald Denny. Now, Reginald Denny was an actor from England, both on stage and Broadway, and he came to the United States and he had this thing about radio controlled airplanes. So he hired a couple of people, one from Stanford and another gentleman to design engines and electronics. And he actually built a radio controlled airplane called the RP-1. Now the RP-5 version of that, which is hanging from the ceiling in the West Museum of Flight, they built 15,000 of them in World War II. Imagine. And on the upper right is some of the early management. And you can see the advanced wind tunnel techniques that they had at the time. They were called moving automobiles, where you risk your life sitting on a fender, holding a scale model of it, and testing the flying qualities, letting it go, and seeing how it flew. How about that? And that's how it was. Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable story. And there's a lot written about it. The next one company I want to talk a little bit about is Ryan Aircraft. Now, Ryan uh, was a leader in aircraft design. He, the company was formed in 1929, 1922, and uh, by Claude Ryan. And um, I had the, the privilege of getting to know Bob Mitchell, the last CEO of, of, uh, of, of Ryan before it was acquired by Northrop Grumman in 99. He was actually a remarkable man. And in the book, I cover all of the developments that Ryan did and subsequent to that in order to make it happen. But uh, out of that company came a program called, guess what? Global Hawk, right? Now, Global Hawk, shown on the next chart, is an absolutely remarkable aircraft. The Triton version of it is now being built for the United States Navy. And uh, Bob Ettinger, who's still alive today, was chief of flight tests on the F-16 and ran the flight test program on board. That's all described in the book. But on the right is how does it work? Well, it's an integral part of providing the battle commander with space, airborne, and sea-based, land-based information so he can make the right decisions. And that's the way battle commanders work today, whether they're in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. They're in charge. They use these assets that are all over the world, as you well know. But the thing to do is to get them integrated, get them to work, and get all that information channeled to the battle, battle commander. And that's the way it works. OK, now I'm jumping ahead here. I had another chart that showed um, for some reason, that's not here. It's not my fault. Something happened in the way this was. They went to the shortened version. But be that as it may, uh, there was a picture of the design evolution of the X-47B. And in our audience, ladies and gentlemen, we have the chief designer, Dan Ryan, raise your hand, from the X-47B, and John Whitberry, who was lead aerodynamicist, program manager on the program. So John... And Dan, well, well done. Yeah. Now, these programs, uh, this was preceded by the X-47A. Now, in order for us to prove to DARPA, because they were moving on an advanced program, 
I won't go into all the initials. Scott Seymour at the time invested $45 million to build the X-47A to prove that we could make an autonomous vehicle match the requirements, take off and land. Only had one flight, but it proved, it worked, and we were an integrated lab. So out of that came the X-47B. The rollout at Palmdale was in 2008. The first flight was 2011. The first demo at sea was 2013. The catapult and the resting was in 2013. And the autonomous refueling was 2015. There was nothing in the world that could touch that airplane. Nothing. It had a bomb bay on it, which we secured because of weight and what have you. But um, now, where we're going with in the future, I have no idea. But I can honestly tell you, having worked on that program with John for several years as a, a corporate consultant over looking at the uh, technical and management things, there was nothing like it around. And uh, by the way, it could also fly in the landing pattern with manned airplanes. How about that? Okay, now we're getting near the end here. And um, I wanna talk just a little bit about Jack Northrop in retrospect. Um, streamlining advanced structures, flying wings, conventional aircraft, the jet engine, I didn't mention that, but they developed a turboshaft engine that all by themselves, they designed it, produced 11,000 shaft horsepower. Now everybody says they should have teamed with GE and gotten it out sooner, but that's what Northrop did. He did not stifle that kind of innovation. He also got involved in computer technology for the Snark missile. They brought in experts and they built that capability. They developed magnesium. Now magnesium is a, is a very lightweight material, but what Northrop had to do was develop the manufacturing process to be able to mold it carefully, right? And it ended up being very strong and very light. And uh, that was another thing he did. The other thing he did is he introduced a new program structure. In order to build a SNARK, you couldn't do it by the old engineering functional department. You had to have something called a program management organization. So these are just some things that happened under Northrop's watch. Now, did he think of this all himself? Well, I don't know, but he allowed people to come to him with ideas and he never turned anything down. It looks it made sense. Non-aeronautical, he designed anchors, boats, toys, artificial devices, and you name it. He would take a train out west and look at a coupling. He'd stop, get off, redesign the coupling, and give it to the give it to the builder of the train. Type of man he was. Now we're getting into some busy charts. Now, whoop, let me go back. Okay, okay, this is the short version again. All right, now let's look at this very carefully. On the left. You see from 1920 up to about 1939, an area called area number one. And that's when Jack Northrop was traveling to six different companies and designing the Vega, the Avion, the Alpha, the Beta, the Gamma, all of which I told you about, okay? Now the gray area is number two. This is when he was with the company from 1939 to 1952. And there you can see 21 airplanes, 13 of which were flying wings that were designed under his watch, not including 24 derivatives. Imagine. And then to the right 
is where the new team came in in 1952. Things started to stretch out, obviously, because of, because of the, the war was over and what have you. But you can see the arrows where the B-2 benefited from all that technology that was accumulated on the early flying wings, all of the digital and computer technology and advanced aerodynamics coming down vertically into the B-2, and then the future, where you look at the, uh, the uh, F-18EF, the X-35A, the F-35 series, the E-2D, and the EA-18G. And what's out there in the future? John Wittenberry knows, right? But the, but the strength of the company is based on this foundation. That's the message in this chart. That's the point I tried to get across in the book. Is that it's not only the designs, but it's the manpower, the skills, the technology, and the resident knowledge that exists in the company today. Plus the acquisitions that were made under, under, under Ken Cress's watch. Now we get to target and unmanned systems. This is a historical version all the way from the 1940s all the way up to present. If you just take a look all the way up to through the fire scout, uh, let's say to the BQM 74, there were over uh, 980 some odd thousand of these built. And if you add in all of the work from the acquisitions from Ryan and for radio playing, the number is close to 110,000 unmanned systems were built between 1940 to the present. That's a remarkable story. That was a good question. Uh, can you hold it to the end, please? No, is these all in the book? Everything is in the book. But I'm going to take pictures of everything. No, no, no. Everything, all these pictures are in the book. I, I, this, I'm sorry. Now we get to the last chart. Is it nine o'clock yet? Okay. Okay. Well, I want to read you something uh, because the uh, this is a chart that shows many of the pioneers that I used to have lunch with in order to write this book. Now, their names are not important, but the whole first row are all passed on. Mo Hesse was very involved in the far right in the development of, of the XST and stealth was passed on to George Sterling, passed on Steve Smith, Boko Gassage, Joe Gallagher, and several of the others. Some of the guys in the back are still with us. I want to read you the last paragraph. It has been an emotional journey since many of the Northrop and Northrop Grumman pioneers are no longer with us or became incapacitated during my communication with them. Memories of them and their accomplishments will sustain us now. For those who remain or have passed on, we are a bit grayer now, and some are well into our 90s. Of course, nobody hears into their 90s. Northrop Grumman will always be part of us, and at times we will gather, remember, and reminisce about those exciting years when we accomplished so much. Thank you. Questions, questions. Yeah, um, sorry. Um, so was assisted launch invented at Northrop on that one uh, cruise missile or whatever you want, the drone with the NARC? The, the assisted launch, you know, the rockets? Is that, snark. is that what you called it? Yes, it was a SNARC. Okay. That's M62A, right? Yeah. Was that invented at Northrop? Yes, that was designed at Northrop. Wow. 
you notice it, it didn't have a horizontal tail. Yeah. It had a special inlet. It was highly refined. Urubash uh, Kanaz was the chief aerodynamicist on that. And it's a very streamlined airplane, beautiful. And it flew very, very well. Right. And uh, they uh, they used to make uh, jokes about snark-infested quarters in Florida <laughs> when they launch it, and they had these uh, rockets that would that would come off on the on the launch, and they would hit the wing when you lose the airplane. Finally, fix that. But you know they make a lot of jokes about it. But if you look at it as a as a person who's been through the development of a new airplane, and you look at what they had to do to get it operational, they had to design every aspect of it, a whole new logistic system. Whole new launching system. The, yeah. the airplane, the air, the air, the Army Air Corps said, well, they increased the accuracy by three times, demanded more. So they had to develop new computer technology. All Northrop did that all. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a great story. It really is. If you so, look at it that way. Fly by optics, is that invented there too, or something like that? Well, I, I'm not an expert in that. Because you kept saying, oh, darn, I, there was something else here. I think I got the short one. I feel like I'm getting ripped off. You must have some fantastic stories that you had that were in the big one. Well, no, I just, uh, what happened here is, I apologize for this. When we set this up, it, it was running through, and for some reason, it went to the shorter version. There were two versions, the shorter version and the longer version. I was going to give you the longer version. And I basically touched on it in some words. There were there were other charts that were more technical that had, uh, uh, for example, some of the performance and what have you. But I basically gave you a lot of that in words, right, from my memory. So so you didn't miss much. Yeah. Would you recommend your books like for people that just graduated from doing their aerodynamics, like a Dan Raymer? They would add this to that for evolution or like the next generation of developing brands. This this book, this book, uh, the, the first book about Grumman was an idea that I had way back in, in 2009. And uh, as I said, I you, you don't become a leader by yourself. People have to get there. The word is we, not I. We. You gotta learn, you gotta learn that, not you, but it's a bigger speech. And so having been involved in the in the concept definition of the F-14A Tomcat, where I had to go down and brief the Navy as to why variable sweep was better than fixed wing and blah, blah, blah. You, you, get a, you get an idea of what it takes. And then putting the design together, the people, the genius of these people, and nobody remembers them. You remember the chief designer, Mike Pellahack. Yes, he was a brilliant man. But he was surrounded by... Uh, 10 or 15 people that really made it happen in the structures, the use of titanium. Harvey knows this, Harvey I know knows this, in fatigue. You realize on the F-14, the Navy would not accept our proposal unless we did a full-scale test on the titanium wing box that we were going to electron beam well, not bolt, but well. They would not accept it. And the same thing on the wing. So we had to invest that money, develop that technology at the type of time. Well, who are these people? Well, they're remembered in a book like this. So when I went and I had the chance, again, I use the word, to come to Northrop Grumman and work on programs. And I said, you know, let's try to do it for Northrop Grumman. This took six years. 
to do research. A lot of people, 150 people or so. And we remember them and their stories are interlaced with the development of the program. It's not just a story about John, Joe, or Mary X who did this. It's, it's kind of related to that. And so it's the history of the company. It's the aircraft, like for example, the flying qualities of the F-5 are discussed in length in the book and in the appendix. Oh, they are? Yeah, they are. Because Andy Scow told me about it. He was the leader in Dallas on the F-20. So, and then the main thing is to remember the people. So if you're if you're interested in those three things, um, so. no, but it does have the technical aspect too. Uh, to a certain level, to a certain level. No, no, no. It's not a technical book, but it's it's if you read it as an engineer, you you grasp. John, John, this thing. Long time. Oh, grass never goes under your feet. What's next? What's next? Uh, rest. <laughs> well, I've been I've been writing these books for ten years. Yeah, yeah, and, and uh, yes. So I, I have an idea. Next, once you've had a chance to rest. Okay. <laughs> so I've worked with many of the people in your picture, and I've worked with yes, many of you. Just, uh, I was a corporate officer at Lockheed Martin, but I consulted with Northrop Grumman, and there's no unique Northrop Grumman anymore, just like there's no unique Lockheed Martin. When I was at Lockheed Martin, uh, I left there in 2000, we were a combination of probably 80 different companies that we would all recognize that had been in this business for a long time. Out of the several hundred that went into defense consolidation, only about five major companies came out of that. And so they're a mix of a bunch of different cultures. We just did an independent review of the HALO program, mentioned Gateway, uh, and reported out to the CEO of Northrop last week. Um, and that's different. When I do reviews for that group, they're uh, a different heritage culture than, for example, TRW, Space Park. Uh, one has really refined processes, another was result of a more entrepreneurial heritage. So there's no unique culture. And I wonder, and for example, you go into review of public program, say, where's the chief systems engineer? That's the guy I want to see after a document. And, and as we were talking earlier, you get a bunch of kids with spreadsheets that are on an IPT. And that's, there's no Kelly Johnson anymore. Yeah. There's nobody that understands the system end to end anymore. How do you see this combination of cultures trying to get integrated into um, a best of the best, you know, combination of best practices across all those processes and cultures. You're asking me? Yeah. Because you, you've been through. Well, you know, having, having been given a chance to run preliminary design at Grumman for six years. Um, you get a little bit of a flavor of what it was like creating a new airplane from scratch, right. you know, and, and eventually winning a contract to build hardware. Um, you still have to do that. The, there, is a, there is a discussion here by Irv Walland. I asked him about that very thing, about the role of designer of tomorrow. It's much more difficult because there are many, many more disciplines. The good thing is the acquisition process by the government 
when they go through the, the PDR and all these phases, I think has been refined. Bill, you, you're very familiar with this too. It's going to come a long way. And I think that's very, very important. What is extremely important is the ability to build, not prototypes, but demonstrators. Because if you do not undertake a device like that, in other words, if you're in a, Grumman got into this situation where they had, they were making money, shareholder value was very good. They did not have a new design, but they were in, in production, okay? Right? And what happens if you do not catch that cycle, you lose a design cycle. You do not have the trained people. What we did at Grumman way back, we were missing that. So we started working on something called a forward swept wing, right? With Norris Crone from DARPA. And we won contracts. We were able to spend money in the company to prove that we understood the, the aerodynamics and the structural dynamics of it. And we won the contract. Now we were we got started in stealth late, but out of that came a very seasoned team in advanced structures and advanced flight control systems because it was quadruply redundant system. And you still have to do that today in any company. Otherwise, you're going to miss the design cycle, and the technology is changing very rapidly, right? And so I don't know whether I answered your question or not, Bill. Well, we're doing a new aircraft every 20 years now. Right. So if you lose the F-22, you're out of that business. You lose That's the right. 35, you're out of that business. It's not like the golden age where every couple of years, uh, you probably get to design a new airplane. Well, that's why it's very important to keep it in a demonstration phase or to exercise your teams to get, look, if you're developing software, right, you have priority one, two, three, and four, right? Now, if you develop a demonstrator system, you, you, can, you don't have to worry about it too much. But if you move into an operational system, those priority threes and fours have got to work, otherwise you're gonna have a problem. And it's only by developing a system like that, right? Like for example, in the book, I did not cover the acquisition of the, of the company that's, I forgot the name of it at the moment, but they build the prototypes, you know what I'm talking about. Scale yeah, scale composites, thank you. Uh, I just, uh, because of the timing, I didn't do that. Now, Grumman acquired that. Why did they do that? Why did they do that? They did that because they innovation and they can build experimental prototypes with a small group of engineers. I have a young preliminary design engineer. Where is he? I just met him before. There he is right there. And, and that's extremely important. I went through that personally. In, in the late 70s and early 80s when we when we developed the X29, right? If you do not do that, those skills will not be honed. Everything's on paper, it doesn't work. You gotta prove it, right? And then particularly when you deal with tough customers like the Navy. And uh, so um, I just hope that the, the money for that continues, both in space and aircraft, that we can take our young design teams find more young Dan Ryans and Johnny Wittenberries and this gentleman over here and, and let them build some hardware. And it's happening, right? Uh, but we need we need more of it because if we don't, we're gonna get we're gonna lose the edge. And we don't want to do that. Yes, ma'am. I'd be interested in uh, the best positive and negative surprises you got. You know, if sometimes you expect something to work and it doesn't, 
or sometimes you say, oh, that'll never work, and it does. What are, what's your best surprise, positive and negative, that you've seen? You mean in my, my experience? Yeah. Um, hmm. Well, one of the uh, one of the near disaster things was on the F-14 Tomcat, uh, where they they took a bomber engine and they put it into an advanced fighter like like that, and they lost a lot of airplanes because of uh, compressor stall and uh, recovering the airplanes, and they eventually uh, were moving towards a digital flight control system in the later version called Tomcat 21, which Mr. Cheney canceled. But uh, the uh, so that was something that I experienced, and it was uh, it was tough, very very tough, you know, things like that. Um, some of the good things were uh, sometimes things happen that you don't expect, like the X twenty nine. You start working, you develop a relationship with DARPA, you you uh, convince the company to spend money on full scale wing tests to prove because you you had the knowledge that the customer would not believe those numbers unless you had physical evidence, right? And so you had to do that. That's right. um, on the on the F-14, when the second airplane crashed, it happened because there was a, a vibration between the engine uh, pump and a titanium end fitting line and both hydraulic systems failed and the backup system did not work. And we lost the airplane. We, fortunately, the crew survived. You know what the Navy did? Take the titanium system out of the airplane completely and put in a steel system. And then later on, prove to me that it won't happen. Wow, talk about a lesson in life. I was a young neophyte working for the chief designer. I said, oh my God, how the hell are you gonna do that? Well, they did it. They did it. it. Cost a lot of money. Grumman lost $250 million on the first five lots of the F-14. In those days, that was big money, but they produced a great airplane. And another thing happened. On the on the F-14 number seven airplane was with the advanced engine. And uh, the advanced engine was built by Pratt and Whitney, and it was marginal, but it had the potential. And what happened is that because of the funding problems, the Secretary Packard canceled $100 million that was going into the advanced engine. And guess what? The new engine didn't get into the F-14 until 13 years later, operationally 16 years later. That was a tragedy, a tragedy. And then Navy looks back and say, boy, did we really screw that one up? I mean, the Department of Defense did not the Navy. And, and all of these lessons learned, you know, you, you know, you, you're there, you witness it, and then you stand back, and then you you grasp the historical aspect of it. And uh, and yet, on the other hand, um, there are companies today that are investing very wisely, or they acquire very wisely, like like the low cost composites group that uh, you know the, the, uh, the, the Northrop uh, uh, purchased. That's the ability of us to build quick prototypes and do that. But the most important thing that a company can do to maintain its strength is to take a young design team and put it through its paces, have them build hardware, have them test it, John knows, right? And because if you don't take it there, they will not have that practical experience because of the testing and the, and the, and the amount of, of work that has to be done. That, that just repeats itself over and over. Yes, John. I 
I just wanted to, to take the opportunity to thank you for being such an amazing mentor to that, that design team on the X47B program. You brought all of your depth of background on the F14 and other programs that truly helped that team to be successful. I appreciate it. I really appreciate that. And I also want to thank you for the time you took to write these, this series of books. It's a tremendous undertaking. Years of your life. Yes. And selflessly done to capture the history. And it's a history that, that every engineer in aerospace provides the historical context of these programs and the people that you have. And lots of things that we can learn to take forward to the future. So thank you. Yeah, it's, it's by the way, these are not these are not engineering books. They're readable. They're readable. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, Mike, this is Martin McLaughlin. Uh, thank you so much for this retrospect. Um, Jack Northrup is one of my heroes. Uh, two things. Uh, I've always been amazed that Grumman was able to pull off the electron beam welded uh, titanium wing carry through box on the F 14. Unprecedented. Uh, how did you guys do that? Well, it was under the leadership of gentleman under Grant Hendrick, who was the chief technical officer of, uh, of Grumman. He uh, served in World War II. He was a structural engineer, an extremely precise man until the day he died. He learned how to fly in his 60s. I flew with him when he flew down to DARPA one day. It's amazing. But he led the effort. And also, uh, what, what Grumman did was they recognized that in order to do titanium electron beam welding, you had to have the ability to assess something called a void. How do you fix it if there's a void? How do you do it? How do you test an electron beam welded part? All of those essential pieces were done not after we won the contract, but before we won the contract at a tremendous investment. Uh, Boeing had developed these Yaki electron beam welding machines. We bought them, right? And we modified them. A gentleman by the name of Tom Main at, at uh, Grumman, a metallurgical engineer, was instrumental in that. He's remembered in the book. And they, they systematically, the engineering department drove the amount of testing that had to be done in order to convince the Navy. Now, you got to understand something. The Navy structures was as good as we were. They didn't have as many people. They had people like George Spangenberg and their structural experts that would absolutely crucify you. They would if you did not meet their standards and provide the information that they wanted at the time. That's the way they thought. And that's the way Grumman operated, right? Now, was it perfect? No. But the problem was is that when you know the Tornado airplane that flies in Panavia that built? Well, who do you think helped them design that box? Grumman did, right? Because of our technology. They didn't know how to do it. And, and we showed them how to do it. But it's because that accumulated testing knowledge that was built at a great expense, right? And, and Harvey, uh, I know, right here, was very involved in the fatigue aspect of titanium structures. He actually taught the Navy about it. And and uh, so, and I mean that sincerely, I'm not making that up. And the point is, is that all of those pieces have to be done, right? 
Hope that answers your question. Yes, I, I, I got to work with a little bit, and he taught the Navy a lot of their uh, structural analysis. Well, Harvey had a well bit Right. Oh. Go ahead, sir. Hello. Um. Yeah. Could you could you speak to the development of the F twenty Tiger Shark? Did the F20 Oh, well, I have a chart on that. Unfortunately, something happened here, Ken, that I didn't include. But the F20 was a remarkable airplane. It didn't fly till 1982. See if you can find it here, Ken. I, I can't find it. It was here before. But um, just so you understand, it was it flew in 1982. It was totally funded by Northrop. And it was supersonic, it was Mach 2. Uh, it had all new avionics in it. It was a highly maneuverable airplane and it was in direct competition with the F-16. And what happened is that General Dynamics, by virtue of their, their, their work on the F-16, was able to, with congressional help, to lower the price of the avionics in their airplane. So they ended up with an airplane yeah, that's that's one that I missed right okay. there. Okay. Yeah. Quick question. Question from Zoom. Yes. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Um. Uh. So I, I'm honestly sorry I had to join late. Um. But I did want to hear this talk. I worked. I heard you mention the name of of someone I work for. Uh. Irv Ashkinus. I worked for him as a young engineer at his company at STI in Hawthorne. And before that, uh, I wanted to know. Uh, I had the I had the great pleasure of uh, having as my grad school advisor in 1989 uh, William R. Sears, and I wondered if you said anything about uh, Professor Sears or had him in your book. Yes, yes, uh, Bill Sears. In fact, if you look at the cover of the book, <laughs> if you look at the cover of the book, uh, the gentleman to the to the let's see to the left. Um, I guess if you're looking at the book to the right of Jack Northrop is Dr. Bill Sears. He was oh my gosh, I wondered, yes. I wondered if that was him. How wonderful. Yes, and what happened is that Northrop uh, brought in Von Karman and Bill Sears to be his advisors as he was developing the flying wing. And then Bill Sears continued uh, as chief aerodynamicist and got involved in all the programs. And he's mentioned quite heavily in the book, yes. And he's a brilliant, awesome. brilliant man. Fantastic. I did my master's thesis with him. He was a professor emeritus at University of Arizona in 1989. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. So yes, was Irv Ashkenaz. Yes, he was. Your words are well taken. Thank you. Thank you. So, Mike, this is uh, Kevin. Um, this uh, presentation seems to be kind of a Northrop-centric. Do we look forward to a, uh, a volume two uh, that... Uh, there's a little more uh, Brahman. I mean, it's amazing how the, the both Jack Northrop and, and Leroy Grumman, how, how their lives parallel. Well, there's a book written about the aircraft designers of Grumman. It's called The Aircraft Design Grumman Historical Perspective. And then the second book in two volumes is The Aircraft Designers, A Northrop Grumman Perspective. It covers the time of Northrop from 1916 up through 1952, and it covers Northrop from 1939 
all the way till today, up to about 2015. Okay? So they're all covered. Sounds great. You're welcome. And they're all available through the... Uh, yeah, if you look at if you look at those little uh, cards on your table there, those are book cards. Uh, they show you the the front the front covers of both books, and on the back is a description. On the back is a description of the um, of what's in the book and where you can order it. Okay. Oh, and I might add that um, I believe it's until the thirteenth of December. Uh, your books are on sale at the AAA website. Right, right, right. Thank you. Uh, this is a chart here that uh, one of the ones I wanted to show. It shows you a, 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 an engineering chart where you see maximum speed on the vertical axis and years on the horizontal axis. And below that, you have the various companies that Jack Norfolk worked for and the various airplanes that he designed. It's absolutely incredible when you stand back and you look at what was done, right? It, it really, it really is. Let's see if the, some of the other ones are in here. What's happening here, Ken? These are not correct. Yeah, the, the mouse. Okay. Well, that, that's that, that's probably the auto move too. Yeah. Well. Um, I could show them the. Uh, well, I, I basically spoke to it in words. Which one? Further down. What's that one? Oh no, not not that one. No. no, I th I think that's probably. Okay, because these are great. Well, I, I did not include those in the in, in presentation. So that, that's 115 charts, of which I selected only a certain number. What happened is that when you set it up, it went to the abbreviated version versus the slightly longer version, but it's fine. I covered it all in words. Anything else, sir? Yeah, you said um, Jack Wall broke himself and retired from that. So how, how were you a part of the people playing? Well, he was very involved in the Northrop uh, Institute where they train young engineers. He was very interested in the Boy Scouts and things like that. Uh, remember, he uh, he went through quite an emotional time, and he was uh, his health was beginning to fail. And what happened? There's a wonderful picture in the book about him being called back with the approval of the Air Force and the program manager to see the B two. Right, to see his dream come, become reality. And he said, now I can die peacefully. And he did, he did. Yeah, it's quite, a, quite, a, quite an interesting story. Sir. Did you uh, interview Dr. Cashin as part of your research? John Cashin helped me write the uh, stealth chapter. Right, as, as did Mo Hesse, yes. We had to be very careful about it from a security point of view, but we, managed to put it together and get it approved and what have you. Uh, a lot of the charts came out of private collections here. Only 20 charts came from North Grumman and those had to go through quite a rigorous process. Uh, but John was uh, instrumental in helping me write, write that. Yes, another question. Yes, sir. Yeah, you talked to how the Super Hornet acquisition process is on the acquisition process I was wondering what key kind of ideology practices went into that, 
given up Super Mario the brand new way. Well, it was, yes. But you see, what happened is that um, there was a learning process between uh, Northrop and McDonnell Douglas. When they started designing the F-18A, uh, Howard King uh, helped me uh, with this. And uh, we went, didn't want to get into he said this, she said that, blah, 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 blah. But it was a cultural assimilation of how the design process worked. Remember, they're unionized, Northrop's not unionized, right? It eventually reached the point where they allowed non-union mechanics to come into St. Louis to do final assembly of an F-18. That's how far it came. So when I took over the F-18 program, and again, I was just for I, but I was given the responsibility to the ABCD. We were building 70 airplanes a year, right? We had to work very closely with McDonnell Douglas, and they had reached a level of maturity where the processes were working pretty well. But before that, you know, uh, if they didn't like the stress analyst way back when they started the A, they had a big fight, right? And eventually, that sorted itself out, and and uh, so so it took so it took time and processes. The big thing that they do today, like for example, on the uh, on the Growler program, which was an, an outgrowth of the EA-6B, they share the same database, 5.30 every morning, the Navy, Northrop, McDonnell Douglas, all share the same database. It's no secrets, right? And that's it's an integrated team. And uh, that's the way they manage today. They, they come a long, long way. It's the same thing in flight testing. Like on the uh, on the YB-49, uh, they lost one of the prototypes. It's because the Air Force had their way of flight testing and the, and the Northrop pilots. And yeah, they talked, but it was not a totally integrated team because when they put the airplane into a spin, right, there was a certain altitude to do it at, et cetera, et cetera. The Air Force didn't do that and they lost the airplane. The wingtips came off, the crew was killed. And, uh, Today, they don't do that. On the F-18, it's a totally integrated system. And it works. I mean, I went through that. And, and it, it works very, very well. I hope I answered your question. Sure. Yeah. Mike, we have, an, we, Mike, have an can... we have an online question from, uh, oh, oh. from, from Paul Glessner. OK. And uh, Paul, are you available? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, did I ask a question earlier? But I want to make some comments and ask a question. Uh, can you hear me OK, Mike? Yes, sir. Hey, so uh, I just want to give a little perspective from a kid. I say kid at you know graduating Penn State '84 and working at Grumman, and to stay in a hotel where you know the astronauts stayed, to walk through where the lunar lander was built, I was in awe. And uh, to then work in advanced design, uh, I was at the pointy end of the spear. I felt in my little brain, and to work next to Dr. Bookman, you know, daily tied to the hip. Yes, uh, I knew Dr. Bookman very well. And I'm going to ask you a Dr. Bookman question at the end. But um, speaking a little bit about uh, John Myers, you know, uh, I, I got to befriend him later on in years. And, you know, he was very instrumental on uh, the P-61 Widow and um, a little bit of the flying wing. And I asked him one day, I, uh, point blank, I said, John, what, what kind of guy was Jack Northrop? He says, when I balled up the P-61, you know, Widow up at Edwards, uh, he picked up my wife and drove her up to Antelope Valley to the hospital. You know, that's that kind of guy. 
Um, that was kind of a man he was. <laughs> and uh, John and I, I was a pilot, so I, I, you know, he had that uh, air flight down at Long Beach, and I got to see his office, and oh my God, there was over 300 mahogany models, and he flew each one. But uh, uh, he told me the story one time. He, he got out of his citation. Uh, he flew till he was 90. He got out of his citation uh, SP2, and uh, uh, the, he buttoned up the door, and the, and the line boy says, aren't you going to let the pilot out? <laughs> because he was so old. But uh, cute story there. Two questions. Uh, sure. if, you have, if you have a Dr. Bookman story for me, I'd appreciate hearing it. It's something that stands out. But also, was it true that when the E2C was designed, it originally had three tails, and Leroy said, no, it's got to be symmetrical, four. You know, had no, enough for... Navy, no, the Navy insisted on four. Yeah? No. The Navy insisted on it. They did the same thing with the F-14. We had a single tail at the mock-up and no. uh, the mock-up review, and George Spangenberg says, put two tails on and we want more directional stability. That was the end of it. There's no discussion. Yep. That's it. Yeah. Uh, but do you have a, a story for me on Dr. Bookman? Anything that stands out? Well, he used to come in. You have to understand who Dr. Bookman was. Dr. Bookman was a lead aerodynamicist at Bloom and Voss during World War II. Mm -hmm. And um, we also had the lead aerodynamicist from Messerschmitt, who <laughs> was, I got to know Joe Hubert as well. He was the chief aerodynamicist on the ME 163. These guys are yeah. amazing. But Dr. Bookman's a great man and brilliant. He's the man that discovered the NACA report on positioning the wing pivot more right. outboard to reduce trim drag on variable speed wings. Yep, yep. And I always He's remember the him man that found it and got it to the designers and they tested it. He spoke with a heavy German accent. He loved to sing and dance. He played the piano, but he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And, uh, uh, when I went into preliminary design, they had Stanislaus Galski, who was in his 60s. He designed, built, and flight tested his own airplanes in Poland in World War II. And he went ahead and built the first wind tunnel and a supersonic wind tunnel in England and uh, then came to the United States. You had Joseph Hubert, who was the chief aerodynamicist on the ME-163 rocket interceptor. And you had Gunter Bogman, who was from Germany and uh, was involved in vertical takeoff and landing aircraft and advanced designs. And preliminary design was really preliminary design. Then. These were men who were, you know, had been through so much together and uh, they guided the young people and what have you. So I was fortunate to get to know them and some of them ended up working for me, but when I took over preliminary design, but uh, they're, you know, they're mild, they're, they're way, way up there. Right there. I enjoyed my time there and uh, I worked there three years and uh, uh, they, they let me, uh, you know, go to school at night and they paid for my master's sure. degree and it was just, it was a slice of heaven and it was three hours back home to Philly. So down the road. Yeah. So. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you, sure. Mike. Okay. And you said, sir. Uh, yeah, back, you were mentioning how uh, the new JSF 35 is going to be thousands or something. And you said, don't know if it's going to be as much as we have five. I'm curious, has that been a Korean Zeno? You mean in production? In production? Uh, 3407. 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 3, 
Now, you know, you got to understand something on the F-35. Everybody bitches uh, and complains. It doesn't have enough thrust away. The wing loading is too high. But as an integrated battle system, there's nothing like it in the world. Even the YF-22 today, it's an older airplane. It beat out the YF-23. But operationally, technology-wise, that nobody can touch that airplane. Nobody. No, in, in, in my opinion, I can be wrong, John knows better, but, but operationally in technology is a superb airplane. And, and the F-35 will eventually get there, right? It, they'll make more improvements to it. The software is the key. It started at 6 million lines of code. It's now, well, several years ago, it was 24 million lines of code. So, we have another we have another question from online and that is from aj lacko and uh, that is i need to read that too often technology development is stifled by schedules that are too long for investors to stomach or a price tag that customers and ceos don't want to pay for we witnessed a number of step changes in technology what qualities of program earn the most buy-in from the decision makers well, I, there is a process called risk management, and um, it's uh, fundamental. We went through it on the X-47B, and they do it now. Um, it's a very rigorous process. Everything that has a risk on it is assigned a percentage of failure and cost impact. And the customer, the, 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 the major contractor, the subcontractors, and the customer all look at the same data. There's no this or that. And they look at that and they track these. And uh, if it turns out to have a fairly, if it's, it's plotted as red, yellow, or green, and they track them through the entire life of the program, all the way from early acquisition, because the customer insists upon it from the beginning. They didn't used to do that. Oh yeah, we'll take care of it, blah, blah, blah. They'll do that. It's a very rigorous process. And, um, uh, if you don't follow through on those things, you can run into problems. And what they do is before they have the PDR and the various milestones, those things have to be looked at very carefully. And if they're not ready, they won't move. Funding will stop. They'll slow the program. That's, that's the rigor and the discipline that we have today in the acquisition process, as far as I remember. Okay, at least that's the way I did it. Uh, we did it. That answer your question. Hey, Mike, this is okay. Martin again. You know, in the 50s, we had an X airplane every, you know, three times a year. Uh, now it's tough to, you know, like you mentioned, it's it's wonderful for a young design team to get to build a demonstrator. Do you think we could do more of those at subscale now, now that we have computational um, analysis? Uh, it depends on what the design is. Uh, you can do a lot on subscale uh, with the codes that they have today. I mean, I'm, I'm out of date. John could probably answer that better than I could. But um, the uh, I think if the government, you can build something today for $100 million. That sounds like a lot of money. But in terms of procurement, Bill, Bill Wallace knows this. <laughs> like 99 times. 
you can do a lot for 50 to 100 million dollars, whether you're using uh, IR&D funds or company funds or whatever with a contract and do some demonstration. It's incumbent upon each company to keep their young design teams trained in building hardware through flight tests. Not only on paper, but like the X-47B, you've got to take it to trials. You've got to do it because you, you, you take it through the process, you involve the customer, you go through all the specs, the requirements. Yes, you don't have to do everything, but you have to take it to that, to that level. And if we do more of those, we'll ensure that we have the design expertise available and then you have the brilliance of the design. Now you get into the type of requirements that the government's gonna be asking for. I don't know what the future Navy is gonna look like, but it's gonna be some combination of manned and unmanned, and uh, all that's gonna to have to be looked at. So uh, I don't wanna answer your question, but I, I'm a firm believer in that. Yes, anybody else? When did you retire? I don't think you are retired. And not really. No, no. I retired uh, in uh, about 13 years ago, 14 years ago. But you're still having fun, haven't you? Yeah. So, yes, sir. Mike, one thought. So I agree with what you're talking about. Um, demonstrators make a lot of sense. I'm not a finance guy, but when I think about the 50 million you guys were spending on the X-29, and at Lockheed Martin on the X-33, who are spending 50 million a year where there's no follow-on orders. And so financially, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, unless you've got potential orders out there. Well, the, the issue at Grumman, I'll be very frank with you, the issue at Grumman was that we had production programs and the young people were leaving that we we were we 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 were seeing this that um, there wasn't enough impetus on a new design and we felt that the X twenty nine we realized that it may not become an advanced fighter but there was a lot of work in the Air Force on advanced tactical fighters developing out of the Flight Dynamics Lab and advanced aerodynamics reducing transonic drag. And we capitalized on that. And we did, as I say, we put the new design team together and Glenn Spaked went on to become, was the chief aerodynamicist, went on to be head chief engineer and then he left the company. But the point is, is that uh, I think selectively those things make a lot. You can't, you can't do it indiscriminately, but uh, you have to look at that very carefully uh, to give, give the young people hardware experience. They've got to take it through hardware. They've got to take it through hardware. Sir. I know, I mean, you said you retired by the I don't know how much, how closely you kind of following AI developments. Do you think something like that may speed up the development and get a close down uh, based on your experiences? You mean artificial intelligence? Yeah. And what you're reading, you think that kind of speed up that? Well, listen, there. There's an upside and a downside to every new process. I, that, that I'm very familiar with. I, I spend thought about that. Um, so the, the, the idea of uh, using AI, I think makes a lot of sense uh, if they are channeled in the right direction. Now you gotta understand something, depends on the customer. 
when you deal with the United States Navy, you got to know what the hell you're talking about, right? When you go in and you talk to the structural branch of the United States Navy, I don't care if it's today or 10 years ago, it doesn't change. You have to meet those requirements. So if you want to use AI to prove your point and collect more data to, and you do the test, I'm all for that, right? But you, you have to know what you're trying, what you're trying to achieve. Obviously, in the preliminary design phase, where you're looking at a lot of different things, AI could help because they bring in data from all from all over, from sources that you may not know about, perhaps. Perhaps. John can probably answer that better than I can. But uh, uh, so I'm not against it at all. We, we are coming close to the end of our, our available time. Okay. Uh, we got a couple more questions. Uh, one question here was what sort of alternate control surfaces were used in all the tailless XP 35 and similar aircraft is against conventional wing tail aircraft control surfaces? Uh, well, that's, this is a job that uh, Irv Ashkenaz work, worked on. He was an aerodynamicist and uh, Krieger. Uh, they used a series of, of elevons and uh, split control surfaces that would allow the airplane to pitch and roll. And that was worked out pretty well. There's an excellent chart that I had. Ken, can you, can you uh, see if you can find it here for me? Uh, go down to flying wings, uh, uh, right there, that one. Okay, let's take a look at this. These, this is the XP35 on the left and the YB49 on the right. Okay, now you can see right there, the wing trailing edge. These are the these are the elevons, and then you have rudders on the outboard uh, wingtip, which are split that that allow for roll control and what have you. All this had to be developed as they were designing the airplane. Imagine this is a whole new control concept. Yes, they had played around with it, and over here on the YB forty nine on the right, when they got rid of the uh, the propellers. Um, they had to they had to increase the tail service because of the lack of loss of stability due to the large nacelles from the propeller version. I wanted you to see that uh, in the presentation just to emphasize the point that it wasn't only the aerodynamics of the of the flying wing that were amazing, but it was how the hell do you control this thing, right? How do you fly it? And it worked out pretty well. It worked out pretty well. So okay. One more question of the, the people online. Uh, Jerry Lockenauer, I believe, was on the line, and uh, I thought he was going to have a question or a comment regarding something here. Jerry, are you there? Uh, he's unmuted on this end. Okay. Well, let me... <laughs> Okay, now it's my honor to present to you a commemoration and an appreciation of your, of your in, involvement, your, your presentation here tonight. This is a... Uh, this is a... Very nice. A, a, a certificate of appreciation. Well, thank you very much.
So, so we really uh, are at a point of, of taking a, a well, at the end of the day for the for the event. Uh, we're welcome to stay stay around for a few more minutes. We do need to be out of here before nine o'clock, and uh, I think I'll leave the the system live on here. But I thank you for your attendance and all the the very illuminating questions that have been asked and a great appreciation of the of the many very senior and, and, and uh, experienced people that have contributed to this conversation at the end of the meeting. Thank you. Thank you.